Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, the gospel writer says this, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. In Luke's gospel, we find that it's recorded for us the things that happened with Mary. In Luke chapter 1, it says in verse 26, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. We saw last week how the Lord miraculously brought John the Baptist into the world. And as we saw, it was a supernatural act of God that uh, the wife of Zacharias Elizabeth was with child. They were both well stricken in years, the Bible says, and she had been barren all of her life. But God, who is the creator of all things, can always overrule uh, his creation. And so while she was well stricken in years and her husband an old man, we find that just as Gabriel spoke to uh, Zacharias as he was in the temple offering incense to God, we find exactly as he was told is how it came to pass. Now Zacharias, when he was told, there was doubt in his mind and he didn't understand how this would be. And so one of the signs of which 
this would occur, that it would happen, is that he would be dumb and unable to speak until those things were come to pass. And so for the entire time of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, he could not speak until the child was born and they were going to name him Zacharias. And Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. And finally they beckoned to John and he wrote on a tablet saying his name is John. And as soon as he wrote those words and they understood, then God gave him voice once again. And that man began to praise God for his wonderful goodness. So six months into the uh, conception of John the Baptist, now Mary receives word from Gabriel that she is going to have a child. Now, obviously, the angel comes to her first. Because Joseph, as we read in Matthew chapter 1, she's already conceived a child. Uh, so Luke 1 comes before Matthew 1. So we find that the angel tells Mary about this. Obviously, she doesn't know how this is going to happen. Now, she, I believe, knows the scriptures. Uh, Joseph and Mary were godly individuals. You'll find that they will comply with the law of God in every aspect of what is required of them. And it is certain that she knew Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where the Lord told Ahaz the king that he would uh, receive a sign. And the sign would be that a virgin would conceive. And thou shalt call his name, as we see in the New Testament, Emmanuel, being interpreted God with us. Or God with man, or deity with humanity. So Mary, of course, is overwhelmed by this news. Doesn't understand how this is going to occur. And there are a lot of very strange ideas that men have proffered on exactly how it is that the Lord Jesus Christ was conceived. It was not an ungodly thing at all. It was not like uh, the Greek gods or the Roman gods where a god would come down and literally have sexual relations. with. That's not what happens. The word Luke gives us is that she would be overshadowed and the power of the highest would come upon her. That word overshadowed, we find a number of times throughout the New Testament, but also we find uh, it in Hebrew form in the Old Testament. When it talks about the power of the highest overshadowing her, we see that also occur in the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, before Peter, James, and John. When all of a sudden they're on the Mount of Transfiguration and a cloud overshadows them. In other words, they're enshrouded and they cannot see all that's happening and then when the cloud passes away what has happened the Lord Jesus Christ has been transfigured and they're able to see him like you and I will see him at the last day his glory was exposed uh, the glory of the Christ that uh, from the moment of his conception that had been enshrouded in humanity uh, for a brief moment on the Mount of Transfiguration was peeled back so that Peter, James, and John were able to see the glorified Christ. They had a preview of the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, this same overshadowing we find uh, in the Old Testament when the Shekinah glory of God would come down into the tabernacle and later the temple in the holiest of all, and there God would bless that place. Uh, God obviously wouldn't touch it, but God would still uh, bless it, and, and men would say, when the children of Israel were going to pass through the Red Sea, you find that the cloud of God came upon them and covered over the Red Sea, and there they were protected by the hand of God. So when it tells us that the power of the highest overshadowed her, it's just letting us know 
that something very miraculous, but also something just and godly is occurring. And she conceives a child. Now, there's a lot of mystery in this, and there's much about it I cannot explain. I can say this, it was a very godly thing, it was a respectable thing, and it was a just thing. Uh, we find that Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul would say to Timothy in 1 uh, Timothy, uh, I think it's 1, yes, 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says that great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Now he'll give us six reasons why it is that great is the mystery of godliness. But the very first thing that the Apostle Paul tells Timothy that the mystery of godliness is great and why it is, he says that God was manifest in the flesh. Now there have been like some, uh, pagan uh, thoughts about uh, whether it were the Greek gods or the Roman gods of how the gods would unite with uh, women of this world and from that there would be uh, superhumans that would come forth. That's not what's going on here. That's not what's transpiring. The eternal Son of God uh, that was with God in the beginning, as we find in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Uh, that same One that was with God before the world began was coming into this world. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is altogether God, would now also become a human being. He would not take on the nature of angels, the Bible says, but the seed of Abraham. He would come into this world as a human being and be exactly like you and I. The difference being that he was not susceptible to sin. The Lord Jesus Christ was impeccable. We believe in the immutability of Christ. That means that he was unable to commit sin. The Lord Jesus Christ, it's not that he just did not commit sin, that is true, but the Lord Jesus Christ thankfully was unable to commit sin. He, as, she, as the angel told Mary, that holy thing, uh, notice how the Lord is described, that holy thing which shall be conceived in thee is of the Holy Ghost. He's a holy thing. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. But also, as Paul would tell us in the Hebrew letter, in Hebrews chapter 2 it is, he says, beginning in verse 16, I've already quoted part of the text, he says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham, wherefore in all things it behooved him. I like that word behooved. It means it obligated him. In other words, he was under obligation to do what's about to occur. What does it mean he was obligated? Who obligated him? He obligated himself to this. He obligated himself in the eternal covenant when God the Father chose out his people before the world began. The Lord Jesus Christ then obligated himself to come into this world as a man, being found in fashion as a man, humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So here it says, uh, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor, that means able to understand and comfort them that are tempted. So again, he didn't take on the nature of angels. The Lord Jesus Christ took on our nature so that he could be a merciful and also a faithful high priest. Now, there had been high priests that served before that were good men. Uh, could be called merciful, could have been called faithful to the degree they were able. 
but yet they fell short of what the Lord Jesus Christ as our great high priest was able to accomplish in his mercy and his faithfulness to God, but also the promise that was made that we're the blessed recipients of when he was in glory with the Father before the world ever began. So again, what we read here in Luke chapter uh, 1 and Matthew chapter 1 going into Matthew chapter 2 was not some wretched event like the pagans believed of their gods. This was not uh, God coming down, commingling with man and some super form of human was being created. This is God himself who is going to step into time. This is God himself who is going to be part of the creation. This is God himself who is going to come into this. So yes, he's a man, but never forget he's also God. And it's, it's important for us to always be able to discern and understand that you cannot take away from the Lord Jesus Christ his deity, nor must you take away from his humanity. Both need to always be understand jointly. He wasn't half God, half man, uh, like the uh, pagan uh, deities that had mixed with uh, uh, women of this world in the minds of men. It never happened. There was just thoughts that it had. never did occur. That's not the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's not half God, half man. He is altogether God, and yet he was altogether man. And that is why he says, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in flesh. How all this transpired, I don't understand. I just believe it to be the truth. I can't explain to you the virgin conception of Mary. I don't know. Under, I, the Bible gives us very little details about it. Now, interestingly, Luke is a medical doctor who writes about it. And for those who would say that it's just completely impossible for this to occur, well, it's interesting to me that God chose and inspired a medical doctor to record for us the virgin conception of Mary with the Lord Jesus Christ in her womb. He didn't choose Matthew the tax collector. He didn't uh, choose John the apostle. He didn't choose Mark. He chose this man, Luke. Again, a medical doctor, a man who, uh, of all people, it was the best one to choose. So for those among us today that would say this is completely impossible, here was a man that understood the medical world as good as you could in that day and time, and he says, this is what happened. This is what occurred. The angel came and let her know that the power of the highest would overshadow her. Again, it would be like when God overshadowed um, the Red Sea and the children of Israel crossed. It was like the cloud that appeared when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now it says in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Now Luke's Gospel gives us events that happened before this. Mary is told before Joseph. Joseph is told because he obviously needs to know. He is engaged. He's espoused to Mary. Jewish custom was there would be three steps in the marriage process. There would be an engagement. That would be really decided by the fathers of the young man and the young woman, maybe long before they even were aware. Then there would become the there would be the betrothal or the espousal, as the Bible calls it here. The betrothal or the espousal 
was legal and binding. Once this was done, this was a public event. This was stating that we will be married, and normally it would occur about a year after the uh, betrothal occurred or the espousal occurred. And what would go on in that year among many Jews is during that time, the young man would go back to his father's home and the father of the groom would prepare a place for the bride and groom to dwell in their new marriage. A beautiful picture there. It's a picture of exactly how God has dealt with you and I. You and I are betrothed to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're espoused to him. The marriage, though, hasn't fully been come, uh, 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 it hasn't fully come together yet. There's still the ceremony of the wedding between the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride to come. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's coming at the last day. Now think about the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 14. He says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, Jesus is not in heaven right now as a carpenter uh, building a place for you in heaven. I believe the way that the Lord Jesus Christ was talking about and the place and the way in which he would prepare it was by going through death, the burial, and then his resurrection and ascension into glory. That prepared for us a place in glory. But first there had to be a place prepared for us. It took Jesus dying for us. And now, of course, we're waiting for the second coming of the Son of God. And in that moment, you and I will be united in marriage to the bridegroom, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is Mary. Here is Joseph. They're espoused. They're betrothed. They are legally bound to one another. And the only way to end this kind of engagement, it's not like today where uh, the young lady just gives the ring back and says, let's call it quits, and the young man just walks away. You couldn't do that in that time. This has already been a pub public announcement. It's legally binding. And for this to be put to an end, a divorce had to occur. So notice again it says that Joseph was a just man. He's already called her husband. In the minds of the Jewish people, he was her husband. Yet they have not known one another up to this point. So he says, Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. He was thinking through how do I go about this? In a, he loves her. And even, he cannot comprehend how it is. I mean, he, what would you assume if all of a sudden the woman you're to marry is with child? You're going to assume she's committed fornication. There's a reason that she's called the song of the drunkards. Uh, the drunkards would make fun of the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus Christ because the wicked of this world cannot embrace in their minds and in their hearts that God was able to send forth his son made of a woman, not made of a man, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. That's beyond human comprehension. Uh, it goes against nature. It's something none of us have ever seen. And so the wicked of this world make a mockery of the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It takes faith to be able to believe this. It takes faith that God has granted you in the new birth to be able to receive, to believe, and trust in the reality of the virgin conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. And believe me, there are many that are under the uh, title Christian that do not believe in the virgin uh, conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian if you don't uh, embrace this reality because it took uh, the Son of God coming to this world being God and man to be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Uh, there was a division between heaven and earth. There had been a breach between God and man and somebody had to bring it back together. And it took the God-man to do so. And so God sends forth His Son for that very purpose. He's the only one that can and the only one that would. And thank God he could and thank God he would and thank God he did. So in chapter 2, we see after Joseph, he, he, wants to, he knows he has to go at least to the gates of the city and speak to the elders and, and put her away privately. He's got to go through a divorce process. And so he's pondering these things. He's trying to figure out, how can I do this in a way that doesn't bring scandal, that doesn't bring too much attention? I can't just ignore it. I can't just bury it. But I also don't want this to be on the front page of the newspapers of Nazareth. That's what he's trying to come up with. How do I go about this in a way that still protects her, but legally dissolves this union. And so while he's thinking upon these things, that's why God sends the angel to him in a dream and says to him, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and just as she was told, his name is to be called Jesus, but... Joseph is given additional information why his name is to be called Jesus. What does Jesus mean? It means Jehovah is salvation. What does Christ mean? It means the anointed one or the Messiah. For he shall save his people from their sins. So Joseph is given the gravity of why it is that this child is coming into the world. That this is the child that has long been promised. This is, and so he's actually going to quote this angel to Joseph, Isaiah chapter 7. He says in verse 23, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. Very briefly, as you look back in Isaiah chapter 7, you'll find that the political circumstances of God giving this promise are quite interesting. you find that Ahaz is king over uh, Judah at this time, and you'll find that the Syrians have made a league or a covenant with the Israelites because the Assyrians are growing in number and ready to come against them. And so they come to Ahaz, king of Judah, saying, you need to join together with us. You need to bind together with us. In other words, join Israel, join Syria, and between the three nations, we can hopefully put off the nation of Assyria. Isaiah is commanded of God to go to Ahaz and let him know that no league such as that is to occur. That's not to happen. 
God will let him know that those nations shall be brought down, meaning the Syrians and the Israelites, and that's exactly what transpires. It won't be too long into history before both of those nations are brought down. But you'll find that in that promise, he lets him know that a virgin shall be with child, a virgin shall conceive. Uh, he's letting him know, I'm giving you a sign. In other words, he's letting him know that the house of David, which he is of that house, now the king over Israel is not of the house of David. He's not of that lineage. But Ahaz is of the lineage of David. And so God through the mouth of Isaiah lets Ahaz know you don't need to join together with these foreign nations. You need to trust God that he will deliver, that he will help, he will assist. He is going to bless Judah to exist until his son comes into this world. Why? Because it had been promised uh, for centuries that it would be through Judah uh, that a lawgiver named Shiloh would come. And unto him, Shiloh, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall the gathering of his people be. And so God is saying, I will make sure that Judah still stands till my son comes into this world. And so now uh, Joseph is told, it's coming to pass. What Ahaz was told Several hundred years ago, almost 800 years prior, it's now about to happen. And it's happening in your home. Your betrothed wife, your espoused wife is with child. That child is of the Holy Ghost. She's done nothing wrong. She's done nothing ungodly. There's been nothing that's not right in this situation. You don't put her away. You don't be fearful. You take Mary to be your wife. He says, because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now, in chapter 2, we see that they end up journeying to Bethlehem. Now, this is where sometimes in the nativity scenes that we see and hear of today, things began to get a little mixed up. Again, Luke predates Matthew as far as giving the record of the events. The chronology is you need to read Luke, then Matthew. Say, well, why aren't you doing that? Because I want to point out some differences. So, <clears throat> we have two nativity scenes in our house. And in those, you'll see, of course, Mary and Joseph and the baby and a manger. And three wise men there. Well, number one, we don't know that there were three wise men. There were three gifts. Uh, most likely many wise men. Uh, so, we can't verify that there were three. Uh, also, they were not on scene when he was in the manger. That's not where that occurred. Why is it otherwise that Herod commanded that every child that was two and under be put to death? Because it was likely close to two years after the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ that the wise men have now arrived on the scene. See, they're from the east. Some think they're from Babylon, but Babylon's actually to the north. Most likely they are from Persia. And they're wise men. They're called the Magi. They're, uh, some called them kings. But they were men. They were astrologers. They would, were men that would look at the stars. But before we look at those, let's move forward to Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, we find that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming on the scene. And the way that God does this is quite miraculous. It lets you know that God governs in the affairs of men and can alter even major kingdoms to bring his will to pass. It says in chapter 2 verse 1, it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Say, so what? 
Well, if you know anything about how Caesar Augustus ascended to the throne, his name had been Octavian. You'll find he was not the son of the Caesar before him. The Caesar before him that rightly ruled in Rome, when Rome was still a republic, was Julius Caesar. <laughs> Julius Caesar, if you'll recall, though, was assassinated. And then you're going to find that a man by the name of Mark Antony, Octavian, and one other that right now, his name escapes my mind, three men rise up wanting the throne of Rome. And you'll even find that Mark Antony, he joins league with Cleopatra of Egypt, and together with the strength of her navy and the strength of his army, they try to overwhelm. Well, Octavian and Mark Antony, they push aside the third individual, and now you have two armies gathered together. You have the Egyptians and Mark Antony, and this man by the name of Octavian. Octavian, though, in a decisive battle, defeats Mark Antony and his army and also the navy and army of the Egyptians. And now this man, Octavian, is going to rule. But the Roman Senate, they're going to give him a name. And that name is Caesar Augustus. This is the first time that Augustus is used. It means a man who excels. They're giving him a name that almost makes him deity. And you'll find that now Rome becomes an empire... Now he is the emperor of Rome. Uh, they crowned this man. See, this, there had been so much civil war and so much unrest. And in fact, the Roman Empire almost crumbled during that time financially uh, because of the wars that were going on internally over who would be uh, the next Caesar. And so now that everything is settled and Octavian has brought peace to the nation, and as you read about Caesar Augustus, you'll find that he was a very wise administrator of government in addition to being a very good general of the armies. He knew how to rule both armies and governments. He was very effective. And in fact, many viewed Caesar Augustus as the savior of the Roman world. Uh, they thought, we're now at peace. We're now at rest. Everything is all well because now the Roman Empire is settled. Uh, here we have an emperor now, not just a Caesar with a Roman Senate. We have an emperor, a king, that will save us, that will deliver us. And economically, he had delivered them. Politically, they had been delivered. But morally, you'll find things were still very, very wicked among the Roman Empire. And I'm talking about to the far reaches of the Roman Empire, not just in the city of Rome. I don't believe it was an accident that Caesar Augustus is on the throne in Rome at this particular time. It brings a measure of peace even to Judea at the time that the Christ is born. So when it says it came to pass in those days excuse me, that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, that lets us know that this rebellion, this civil war has been put down. Rome is at rest. Uh, the Roman political scene is now uh, back together in unity. And now the nation is about to enjoy political rest, but also economic success. And so now he commands that all the world should be taxed. When you read that word tax, it's not just pay a tax in. It also means to be registered. So it says this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria and all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. There was a way in which you were to be taxed. You couldn't just go anywhere. You know, if I want a birth certificate, 
I have to go to Nolan County, Texas. Now, I can do this online now. A few years ago, I couldn't. Uh, but the only place where my birth certificate can be received from is Nolan County, Texas, because I was born in Sweetwater, Texas. And so it's in that county's health department that that record is contained. That's where it's at. I've had to get a copy of it before, and I needed it to be a, seal, a copy with the seal of the state of Texas on it, and so I had to get in touch uh, with that department in that county. So we follow, in some ways, that same course, but where is Joseph and Mary from? See, they're both descendants of David. Well, their hometown is Bethlehem. Now, they live in Nazareth, well north of Jerusalem, but now they've got to travel to about 80 miles and not an easy travel. They've got to travel about 80 miles to this city. Why? Because Caesar Augustus has said all the world is to be taxed. They're all to be registered. Now, they're going to pay money as well. And it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife. Notice this, being great with child. So how was it that God was going to fulfill Micah chapter 5 verse 2 that said he would be born in Bethlehem Ephratah when they live about 80 miles to the north and she's great with child. God is going to, be, uh, God is going to intervene, providentially bless, and the Roman Empire is going to be settled no longer in civil war and a very good king who both is good in his administration of the military and of the government is going to be reigning in the time that the Lord Jesus Christ comes in this world and he gives a commandment at this precise time that all the world is to be taxed. That is not accidental that all that transpired. That God put down the rebellion and civil war in Rome and that all of a sudden there's a commandment given that all the world is to be taxed. That didn't just happen accidentally. This is by divine providence to bring the Son of God into the world in the way in which the prophets declared it should occur. When people scoff at the word of God, when you will read the Old Testament prophecies of the Son of God and how and many things about Him, but even His entrance into the world, and then you look at the political events preceding that, you think it's totally impossible that this would happen just the way that it does. It is possible because as the angel told Mary, for nothing with God is impossible. He can settle even the massive empire of Rome and bring peace there, raise up a good king so that there would be peace in the days of Christ. And so there's a lot of folks traveling and there's no room for him in the end. And so what happens? Her firstborn is brought forth, wrapped in, a, in swaddling clothes, swaddling we swaddle babies, obviously, today, but it, it brings to mind just strips of fabric showing their poverty. Laid him in a manger, a feed trough, because there was no room for them in the end. No room for them. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, when some wanted to follow him, he... He didn't tell them, don't follow me. He says, but before you do, there's something you need to know. He says, the birds of the air have their nest, and the foxes their holes, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. 
You understand that the one who owns the cattle of a thousand hills and all the gold of Ophir never owned real estate while he lived here in this. He didn't even own a tomb. His burying place was borrowed. When he was born, he's in a barn. There's, when we had our firstborn, I remember Lydia picking everything out, the furniture, the fabric for the drapes, the fabric for all the uh, stuff in the crib. And you could walk into that room. We had to repaint the room, hang it for, a, for Evelyn that would never even notice these things. Couldn't have cared less whether she was in a barn or not, but yet we've got to make everything. And no problem with that. Was happy to do it. And you walked in and it was a serene, peaceful place. That's not where Jesus was born. Uh, I can imagine you were hearing chickens. You were hearing, uh, you were hearing the asses. You were hearing the, uh, the cows. and The noise of, of nature were all about. <laughs> all this is going on. And then we find that after he's born... It says, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, the world recognizes tomorrow, December the 25th, as the day in which Jesus was born. Now, there's no way to say that that's true or not true. I don't think that it is. I believe the Lord Jesus Christ lived to be 33 and a half years of age. When you calculate out his life after his baptism, when he was about 30 years old, when he is baptized, and you follow through uh, the chronology of his life from his baptism, it appears that he lived after his baptism about three and a half years. Well, if he's about 30 at the time that he's baptized, that would mean he lived to be about 33 and a half. We know he was put to death in the spring. And so most likely, his birth occurred around September, late September, early October. So then why is it that we celebrate his birth on the 25th of December? There's really no definitive explanation for that. Some scholars, uh, even some old Jewish scholars, believe, that you can't prove this, that the world was made and completed on the 25th day of March. And so they calculate from that that the Son of God would come into the world on December the 25th. So he would have been conceived on March 25th and born on December 25th. And so there's many Jewish people uh, of that era that that's what they studied, that's what they believed. But you can't go back and prove that. You can't go to the dawn of creation and say it was created on this exact day. It's not recorded for us. There's also some that believe that the reason that it's observed on the 25th day of December is there were pagan worship that was going on. And the Roman church in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century, as it was trying to draw in the pagan idolaters into their churches and into their way of worship, would yield. And a lot of times they would create holidays or holy days that would fit with the pagan customs that those folks were walking away from. So you didn't have to fully walk away from the world. You could bring part of the world into the church. So again, there's no, there's no way to fully say when Jesus was born or why it is that this particular date has been chosen throughout history. And it doesn't matter. The fact is, he was born. If God thought it important for us to know when... He would have told us. And it is amazing how it is that we vaunt this day in our society. 
And it's relatively new in history that we've done so. In fact, in the early day of our colonies, you'll find that it was illegal. It was a civil crime, meaning that it was on the books. It was a crime if you decorated your home in the month of December with evergreens. The Puritans that uh, settled part of this nation, they hated Christmas. They saw it as pagan idolatry, and so it was outlawed. And so for a long time in this nation, it was against the law to even decorate your home with an evergreen uh, a bow above the door, which was con- and, that, that, and this dates back. The decorating with evergreen goes way back into history, long before the birth of Christ. It all surrounds the winter solstice. As some of you probably heard, we just went through the shortest day of the year. Well, people throughout history have studied astrology. They've studied the sun, the moon, and the stars. They knew days were getting shorter and days were getting longer. But see, the Egyptians and even some of the Celtic people, other ones, they believed that their, their sun god in the wintertime got sick. And so in hope of their God getting well, they would decorate their homes with evergreens in hope that there would be life again. It was a a sign of their hope that their God would get okay. Now, thankfully, we don't serve a God that's ever been sick. He's never not been okay. Our God has always been well. I think we understand, hopefully by now, why it is that in the wintertime, the days get shorter, and then around December the 25th, the days began to get longer. And there's a lot of connection there as to why we celebrate the birth of Christ right about this time. And as you read some of the pagan idolatry, it might even make you question whether to celebrate it at all. Some of our people don't, and that's fine. Some of our people do. I've never had an objection as long as we don't make an idol of it. Anyway, so the 25th of December, again, there's no way to say that's exactly when it occurred. Why is it a Christmas tree? Well, again, because it was an evergreen tree. And interestingly, that was something that the pagans did do. And it was not popular in the United States until about 1848. Even up to 1900. In 1900, only one in five homes had a Christmas tree. Something that is so common today was something that was totally foreign. It was illegal to a certain time in our society, but we needed some immigrants to come and do work, and so there were a lot of Germans that began to immigrate to America, and Germans, they put Christmas trees in their homes. And so they changed the law to accommodate these German immigrants, and they would observe the Christmas season with an evergreen tree in their home. Queen Victoria ascends the throne in England. She's married to a German prince by the name of Albert. And in 1848, there's a drawing of Prince Albert's Christmas tree in Buckingham Palace on the cover of a British magazine. Queen Victoria was very beloved. And so because Queen Victoria all of a sudden has a German Christmas tree in the palace of England, it's now in vogue, not only in England, but also among the elite along the east coast of the United States of America. 
Now, the Germans in America had already been doing this, but most Americans still thought it at least odd, and many still thought it was idolatry. But when Queen Victoria now has a Christmas tree in her home, it's okay for the wealthy to do so. And like I said, as time goes on, uh, you'll see it grows more and more. Um, again, if you want a tree in your home, have a tree in your home. If you don't, don't. I will say that I've been grateful. We have worshipped with folks now for over 12 years, my family, that do and don't. And I'm thankful that we have never made that a test of fellowship here. And we need to maintain that. Um, however, if you want to observe that in your home, in your family, that's your business. But do not let it become idolatrous. If it becomes an idol to you, ask yourself the question, could I live this year without a Christmas tree in my house? If you say, no, I can't go through the Christmas season without a tree in my home. I just can't do that. It may have reached the level of idolatry. It's something you need to ask. If you never saw another Christmas tree in your house and you could be okay with that or you could be okay with having one, you could take it or leave it. And I'm more on the rather leaving it side right now, but uh, we've got four children, so it's staying at least for now. Um, if you're at a point you can take it or leave it, you're probably not committing idolatry. But if you can't live without it, then you've put something before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible is clear on that matter. But anyway, so here in Luke chapter 2, we find that the Lord comes, we find that of all people to be told about the birth of Jesus Christ, it's to shepherds that the angel first appears. It's not to Herod in the palace. It's not to Caesar Augustus in Rome saying, hey, look, by the way, thank you for doing all that you've done here and obeying what God uh, put in your heart to do so that the Son of God could come into the world. And by the way, he's over in Bethlehem. That's not how it occurs. The angel comes to the most despised occupation of men among the nation. We think of shepherds and we think of folks like David and we think of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the good, great, and chief shepherd. And we think of shepherd as a very noble profession. In that day and time, it was not at all considered a noble profession. It was the lowest of professions. And so the fact that God chooses to send the angel to these shepherds who were abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock, that's amazing that God chose to tell that the Son of God was here to these lowly men. And it says the angel of the Lord came upon them, the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He says, And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill, toward men and it came to pass that the angels were gone away from them into heaven the shepherds said one to another let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass which the Lord hath made known unto us so here the the heavenly host appears and gives glory to God in the highest and makes the announcement that on earth peace goodwill toward men that's essentially the gospel. 
that the Lord Jesus Christ has come. And now we're to give glory to God in the highest. And because of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is peace between God and men, between heaven and earth. And now we can also say that there is goodwill toward men. Certainly, the greatest will toward men had appeared in the birth of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these shepherds, they're amazed by this. And so, of course, they go to see these things. And then after eight days, uh, we find that uh, he's circumcised. They take him to the temple, and as they do so, as it says in the Old Testament, that he would suddenly appear in his temple. And suddenly he does. Unexpectedly, he appears there. But he wasn't unexpected for all. There was a man there by the name of Simeon. He was fully expecting the Son of God to come. The consolation of Israel, he's called. Uh, he was told uh, that he should not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ, uh, the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Deliverer. And so Simeon, uh, he, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he holds salvation in his very arms. He gets to, the blessing in life to hold the Savior. And what does he say? Lord... Now let us, thou thy servant, depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He was satisfied. He says, I can leave this world now. And then Anna the prophetess, she who attended the house of God day and night praying. What do you think that godly, pious, elderly lady was praying for? She was praying for the consolation of Israel. And so here comes Anna in, and likewise, she's blessed to see. No mention of the high priest. <laughs> Does mention, though, that of course, he's the firstborn son, as we saw a few weeks ago. Um, maybe it was last week, I don't recall. But anyway, in, in the birth of the firstborn, in a male, there had to be a redemption price paid. A lamb, or in the case of poor folks, turtle doves. Two turtle doves. Mary and Joseph, they bring two turtle doves. Now, if the wise men had already visited and brought their gold, frankincense, and myrrh, I suspect they'd have used some of that gold and bought a lamb. At this point, they don't have the gold from those wise men. So they're very poor. That's why they were not obliged and given room and a place in the city of David. And Jesus was born in a barn. And so they give two turtle doves. They redeem their son. They follow the commands of the law to the letter so that Jesus, even when he was unable physically as an infant child, could not fulfill the law of God concerning himself. Thank God he had a godly mother and a godly father and they knew the law and they performed the law so that Jesus, even in his infancy, fulfilled the law to a jot and to a tittle. Now in Matthew chapter 2, we find that the wise men are going to come. It says, When Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east of Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born, notice says, king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Now, I don't know how they know about this. How do they know that he's king of, Jew, of the Jews? And how do they know that this star is his star? Now, every time later that the star is referred to, it'll just be the star. But the first time it's referred to, it's his star. And there's a reason it's called his star. We can go all the way back to the book of Numbers. And you'll find in the book of Numbers, chapter 22, chapter 23, and chapter 24, a very interesting individual by the name of Balaam. Balaam perplexes me. 
When I read about Balaam in the Old Testament, I think, you know, he might have been an okay fellow, maybe with the Lord. I read about Balaam in the New Testament, and I'm not so sure. Uh, I have a lot of questions about Balaam, and if he's in heaven, I know he's there by grace. If he's not there, I'll say, well, the Lord blessed him as a prophet in spite of his iniquity. But anyway, you'll find that Balaam will say in the 24th chapter of the book of Numbers, verse 17, he says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come, notice this, a capital S, a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. So God shows this man Balaam that there was going to be one that would come. Notice again, it says, there shall come a star out of Jacob, a capital S. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. A scepter out of Judah. That's exactly what uh, uh, Jacob said to his sons as he was dying in Genesis chapter 49. Now this man Balaam, he speaks of it. He says there's going to be a star out of Judah. There shall be a scepter from there. Uh, he starts speaking about the entrance of the Lord Jesus Christ into this word. He says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. This is something that's going to transpire later into the future. And then as you read in the New Testament about the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll find that the Apostle Peter says that you and I, we do well to take heed as unto a light into a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in our hearts. He's saying that we're to take heed to a light in a dark place. Learn about we're to take heed to the word of God until the day dawn and the day star. The day star is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says until the day dawn and the day star rises in our hearts. Until Jesus comes the second time, you and I are to find our light in the word of God. We find that Jesus himself says, I am the root and offspring of David. I am the bright and morning star. Uh, so here when they say they saw his star in the east, they said, Who, where is this one that is born king of the Jews? Now Herod doesn't like this information. Uh, there's somebody challenging his throne in his mind. Uh, but remember what Mary had been told by Gabriel. Of his kingdom, there would be no end. And so <laughs> they go to Jerusalem, proper place to go. He commands the chief priests, scribes, and demanded of them where Christ should be born. And notice this. They, they knew exactly. They quoted it. They said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art now thou the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. God gave enough evidence in the Old Testament, and these men knew and yet they still rejected the Lord's Christ. So Herod didn't know, but he called the men that would know. He says, okay, he sends them on to Bethlehem. But he also says, when you're done, you come, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Now Herod had no intention of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. He wanted him put to death because he feared for his political future. And so you'll find that God warns these wise men and they depart to their home country a different way. And we find that the Lord comes to Joseph and lets him know that he's to go to Egypt so that it could be fulfilled what was spoken by Hosea the prophet in Hosea chapter 11. Out of Egypt have I called my son. 
Why is that important? Because Egypt is a picture in the Word of God of bondage, of corruption, of sin, and darkness. And that's exactly by nature where you and I were. We're in the bondage of sin. We were in corruption. We were in darkness. And the Lord Jesus Christ went to the place that typified that. And the Lord says, out of Egypt have I called my son. When the Lord Jesus Christ went up into heaven, it's like he went out of Egypt. And in so doing, much like Moses delivering the children of Israel out of the land of bondage, to the land of rest, the Lord Jesus Christ has done the same for us, but a worse land to a better land than what Moses delivered the children of Israel. Out of Egypt, he says, have I called my son? So there they go to Egypt. And then as they get ready to come home, they hear that Herod, his son reigns in his stead. And knowing his terror, they instead go to Nazareth that he might be called a Nazarene, as was spoken by the prophets. Now, just like John the Baptist, well, no, with John, we know nothing about his youth. After his birth, we don't hear anything about him until it says, In those days came preaching John the Baptist that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke chapter 2, you'll find um, a little more information about the childhood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see that when he's 12 years of age, when they're at Jerusalem, he's left behind. Now, thankfully, while Jesus was left behind, take solace, he'll not leave one of his behind. Not one. He prayed in his high priestly prayer in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. He says, I have lost none. I've lost none. He said, except the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And even in that, I don't believe the son of perdition, meaning Judas Iscariot, was ever his. He appeared to be his, but he wasn't. So the Lord Jesus Christ lost none. He was lost by his own parents when he was 12 years of age, while he sat in the temple, compounding the doctors and the lawyers with his questions and his answers. Here the Lord Jesus Christ comes into the world in what was politically and economically a good time for the Roman Empire, but morally it was a very dark time. In fact, it would say there in Matthew's Gospel, uh, speaking, he said, there were those in Zebulun who were sitting in great darkness, but behold, would see great light. That while Caesar Augustus had brought many reforms and there were many blessings by the hand of that man, he was certainly no redeemer morally for the people of God. While Caesar Augustus, even though this man has this great and shining name, and even as you read about him in history and see what a great man he was, uh, but most of you probably sitting here today know very little about what Caesar Augustus accomplished in his life. But we all know what the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished in his and he has a name which is far above the name Caesar Augustus. He has a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess of both things in heaven, both things in earth, and things under the earth. There's coming a day when the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back that those that have been in heaven, those who are on the earth, and those who have been in hell uh, shall bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and they shall confess who He is to the glory of God the Father. Uh, Caesar Augustus may have been a great man, but thank God the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world of His own willingness. He came uh, to take upon Himself our nature uh, so that He could deliver us uh, uh, from our sins. Uh, so just as He uh, was said to Joseph, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He 
shall save his people from their sins. And when in John chapter 19 on Calvary's cross, he says in verse 30, it is finished. And he says in the book of Revelation, it is done. You can take solace in the knowledge that your salvation is complete. It's certain. It's sure. Because God did not leave it to some angel, some man, even some superhuman. He charged our salvation into the hands of his only begotten son. He sent his own son into the world to condemn sin in the flesh. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice the likeness of sinful, not in, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemn sin in the flesh. The Lord Jesus came for that purpose. He accomplished it. And when it was all finished, when all complete, when every sin that you and I had ever completed, ever done, had been put away, had been purged, the Bible says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This one that had no room in the inn, God has made great room for him in his throne. While he may have been lowly in his birth, he certainly accomplished greatness in his life and in his death. And in his resurrection, you and I were justified. And now you and I, I trust, wait with anticipating hope for the glorious return of the Son of God. His star... They saw his star in the east. There's coming a day that the day star will arise in our hearts. There was a star at his first coming. There'll be one at his second. It'll be the Lord himself. He says again, I am the root and offspring of David, the bright and morning, morning star. But as Peter says, until that time comes, until uh, we're out of the darkness of this world, we're to take heed. As a light that shineth in a dark place, we're to take heed to his word. He says, until the day dawn. And the day star arise in our hearts. May God bless you today as our prayer.